Find a fresh take on a fall getaway to Wilmington, North Carolina and beaches. Enjoy hiking trails in a state park, fresh seafood with a sight of live music and fall festivals galore. Then live it up along the Riverwalk in Wilmington's historic downtown with three island beaches, Carolina, Curie and Wrightsville and a vibrant downtown. You get the best of the Carolina coast all in one place. Plan your fall getaway at Wilmington and Beaches Vacation.com. Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive, sought after, rare, and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com. The following recording may contain explicit language. I can't get more explicit than may. Let's just say it may. It's Thursday, October 11th, 2018. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. And the hottest senatorial races. Well, how about this clip from the brand new podcast from Slate called What Next? Senator Ted Cruz versus Representative Beto O'Rourke. It's really hard to hide from this race. Every time I log on to Twitter, I get a sponsored tweet asking me to donate to O'Rourke's campaign. There are two documentaries being made about O'Rourke. He's just started a podcast. What next? Available on Slate Plus only for now, for a limited time. Then for everyone, but try it out. Anyway, I'm distracted from my point, which is this. They've got their finger on the pulse because everyone is talking about Beto versus Tedo. Here was 538 talking about it. They favorably compared that race to the Nevada one. In the sense that I think Ted Cruz will win. But in terms of if I was an editor assigning people to cover races to find interesting candidates, I would not pick Jackie Rosen and Dean Eller. Those people are not interesting. Versus, you know, Beto is an interesting person. And if he loses by five points or three points or seven, I sort of think he should be covered because he's a Mm. Democrat in Texas and he's very charismatic and people like to read about him. Perry Bacon Jr. there is correct. He usually is. Cruz will probably win. But the race is interesting. Why? Well, people know Cruz. People who listen to podcasts like these don't like Cruz. Beto is said to be charismatic. Uh, Maybe politician from El Paso way. He is skinny, has kind of floppy hair, passably skateboards, and played guitar. But the fact is that he is not even in the top 10 of Democrats who are actually endangering Republicans. We do this all the time with Texas. So often, I mean, since I've been paying attention to elections on a professional basis, we tell ourselves the Democrats can win. Is this the year the Democrats can win? I remember in 2002, reading some articles about Ron Kirk, former Dallas mayor, this exciting African-American candidate. Here's a New York Times article from four months before the election. After winning a Democratic runoff in April, Mr. Kirk is either tied or ahead in early polls. He led the Republican nominee, Attorney General John Cornyn, by eight points in one recent survey. Many observers had expected Mr. Cornyn, a protege of Karl Rove, to coast to an easy victory. Guess what? Cornyn won by 12 points. And it was never really as close as that paragraph indicated. By the way, Beto has never come close to leading by eight points in any poll. Now, four years ago... Wendy Davis was said to have gained momentum in the race for governor. 
She was an activist. She gave an inspirational speech about abortion. Her footwear became famous and she lost to Greg Abbott by 19 points. All my adult life, I've been hearing over and over again, will this be the year the Democrat wins? And not just for governor or Senate, for anything in Texas. So maybe you've heard, I've said it on the show, a Democrat hasn't won statewide office since 1994. That is true. That means they haven't just lost senator and governor. They've lost every Supreme Court race, every criminal court of appeals race. That's a statewide vote in Texas. They've lost governor, lieutenant governor, attorney general, land commissioner, agricultural commissioner, railroad commissioner, outhouse, henhouse, cat house season five on HBO On Demand. Sorry, just turned Tommy Lee Jones there for a second. Texas boy. I calculated all the races the Democrats lost. The Democrats, by my count, are O for their last 83 statewide elections in Texas. But Beto, it's gotten so crazy that in the Weeds podcast, first episode of this cycle to focus on a single race, they, of course, focused on Texas. And here was some of their analysis. You look at the Latino share of the population, it's quite high. Latino share of the electorate is very low. But some of that is because many of the Latinos in Texas are not citizens. And many of the Latino citizens in Texas are children. So, like, there's actually you can't do anything to boost that turnout. The three panelists spent three or four minutes talking about the problem that Democrat Beto O'Rourke will have turning out Latinos to defeat Ted Cruz and never mentioned that Ted Cruz is Latino and Beto O'Rourke is not. Perhaps that might complicate things. It was just an odd take, an odd focus, and I think all of this might speak more to wish fulfillment than a clear-eyed examination of a race that could be won. Yeah, but Ted Cruz sure is a weenie. Here is a campaign ad that he's been running on Texas radio. If you're gonna run in Texas, you can't be a liberal man. Because liberal thought is not the spirit of a Lone Star Man. On the show today, we go from the bad place of a Donald Trump pep rally in the spiel to the good place. In fact, this interview with the creator of The Good Place includes not just moral philosophy, but some insight on what it takes to make what I think is the best show on television. Here is Mike Shore, creator of The Good Place. I'm here to tell you about one of the most attractive automobiles you're ever going to lay your eyes on. And it's not just how good it looks. It's everything that can do. For those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for the adventure. This iconic vehicle has been redefined with thoroughly modern design. The exterior, which won me over, is reimagined with compelling proportions and precise detailing. The interior is built with integrity using the most robust of materials. The Defender capability is legendary, whether you're facing off-road challenges or harsh weather conditions. The Defender 110 lets you go further and do more. Cargo capacity means you got room for your gear. To drive the Defender is to do what you do via your intellect, via your passions in life. It is to explore with greater confidence. 
Ready for a wide range of adventures? The Defender family features the two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, the Defender 130 that seats up to eight. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. The Good Place began as a story of Eleanor Shellstruck, a bad person who went to heaven by accident. Heaven is the good place. That's the name of the show only. And listen, it's been two years. If you don't know the amazing twists and you don't want to know, join me again in 15 minutes for the spiel. But here we go. It wasn't heaven. It wasn't even Iowa. It was hell. Michael Shore is the writer and creator of The Good Place. He wrote The Office, co-creator of Parks and Rec and Brooklyn Nine-Nine. He was, this might come up, this is why I'm giving all the credits, he was behind the baseball-oriented website Fire Joe Morgan. And if you're listening to The Gist, we know demographically you listen to podcasts, I'd recommend he has a podcast with Joe Posnanski that's excellent. And The Good Place has its own podcast that is the best of its form. You know these kind of television podcasts that have essentially replaced the DVD commentary track. No one is doing it better than The Good Place. Long intro, great show. Mike Shore, thanks for joining me. Thanks for that. That was an amazing intro. A lot of info. I would like you to follow me around now and just do that (laughs) intro wherever I go. (laughs) I know the show started with you, or the idea from what I've heard started with you puzzling about uh, the ideas of a scorecard, a scoreboard, keeping score of your morality. And then I also heard you tell the story of we've all been there, being in a coffee shop, you want to give the barista a tip, her back is turned, you wait, and then you tip so she could see it. Were, did one of those experiences come before the other idea, or were they both going on at the same time in your mind? They're sort of going on at the same time. At the, the little game I played where I would drive around L.A. or walk around and assign negative and positive points to actions that I saw just in my head, that, that had been going on for years. And the sort of self-critical um, awareness that I had about my own little foibles, I mean, that's something that had been has been going on since I was old enough to know what a foible is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it wasn't like it didn't sudden <laughs> these things didn't suddenly happen. Probably until you're old enough to give a name to that thing that you've been That's right. knowing was a foible, yeah. <laughs> yeah, the when the first moment that you're old enough to go, "Why do I do this? What is wrong with me?" So, it wasn't like those things suddenly popped into my brain. They just coalesced into an idea at a time after Parks and Recreation had just ended. And I sort of took a few months off just to clear my head. And during that time, it's when it all started to sort of coalesce. But it wasn't just those two things either. It was a passing sort of um, very, very casual interest in philosophy and ethics specifically. And it was a sort of like, you know, general worldview about, you know, what I think makes for a good or bad person. Um, and then it was a desire to to do something, a show that took place in a different arena than the shows I'd been working on. Like you said, I had come from the sort of what you would call a fairly traditional workplace comedy world. It was, you know, Parks and Recreation, Brooklyn Nine-Nine, um, The Office before that. Like those were all shows that were more or less in a, a big ensemble cast who all worked together. And I just I could have kept doing that and because I at that point I could do pretty well like I had been doing it for you know 12 years on three different shows but it just sort of felt like well I NBC was very kindly giving me this space to do whatever I wanted and that's a rare thing and I felt a sort of obligation to try something a little riskier and um and so that's where this all of those things sort of went into a big pot and got stirred around and this is what came out. 
Now, I want to ask you about the creation of uh, your four main characters and the fact that you've assigned them to hell, essentially. But first, can I just ask you about the tipping and being noticed for the tip? On the one hand, it does seem kind of uh, petty-minded. But I think it's sort of the lubricant of society. And if it's true that there's no such thing as altruism because altruism gives us a good feeling and so it's therefore not a selfless act, is that a bad thing where maybe points would be taken away if we're going on the point system? Or is it a good thing? Is it a feature or bug of human nature that we're generous because we get the good feeling or the credit from our generosity? Right. There's a lot of questions about it. And that's part of what made me think that there was a show here because I noticed, okay, when I get a cup of coffee, I am going to throw a couple coins into the jar, maybe a dollar into the jar, and I wait for the barista to turn around. I had sort of noticed that about myself. And my first instinct was embarrassment and shame and a feeling of like, what the hell is wrong with me that I, that I, that I care, that I want the points, like I want the credit, right? But then I then you start chewing on it. And what you say is like, well, okay, hang on. Let's maybe let myself off the hook here. Like there's there is something good about a sort of face-to-face interaction with someone in which you smile and acknowledge that person's work and show them that you believe that their work had value and you're gonna tip them because of their work. And it makes me feel good and it makes them feel good because they have a moment of like, oh good, I, I did my job well and I got a tip. Theoretically, this is all theory, obviously. Who knows what the hell's going on in anyone's brain. And then you think, well, also maybe there's something where you could say about calling attention to a pleasant interaction, not just for the person that you're having the interaction with, but for the people in line behind you and for the other people uh-huh, who are working right. at that coffee Model, shop. Modeling a norm, yeah. Modeling <laughs> their, yes, exactly. Maybe there's some value in that. and. You can sort of go on and on. You can get into deep psychology, like you just said, of like maybe it's a, it's a this is the result of of you know millions of years of human evolution in which with, that's an advancement in which we're saying I have the instinct to do something a small kindness for someone, and my instinct is um, it is also to let that person know that I. I'm doing this kindness for them so that they then do a kindness for someone else or whatever. You can you can sort of endlessly chew on it and and slice it up and break it up into pieces and put it back together and analyze it from a thousand different views. And really that aspect of that of that situation was really what made me feel like there was a TV show here because it wasn't just I think a, the version of it where all I recognized was a sort of like slight embarrassment at how um selfish I am that I that I want I want credit for tipping someone that's more like a curb your enthusiasm type situation right that's it's exactly what I yeah. was going to say and there's a lot to be plumbed there but it's the development of one character as opposed to like this broad idea right and and it's it's less about something that it's less about saying something about humanity potentially than it is saying something about in that case Larry David yeah, <laughs> so yeah. so you know or I some Schmendrick character yeah exactly. exactly so I that really the fact that you can say well no hang on a second what about this angle that is re- actually what made me feel like there was an idea there so if what we can glean about what the real good place is, what heaven is, is is the photo negative of what we've seen of the bad place. I wonder, and maybe that's not fair, 
But I wonder how ethical, in at least my version of ethics, your good place is. Because it seems that a few of these people have horrible traits or have manifested in ways that hurt others. And yet there are real explanations. You know, Eleanor's backstory shows what a scrapper she was and how and how independent she had to be and how she was very much formed by her circumstances and a victim of them to some extent. And in your heaven, the first time she's given a chance to come out of those circumstances, she really does well. And then I think of Chidi and his and his indecision as paralyzing, but also, you know, something that probably could be medicated. And I think of Jason's Jason's circumstances. So it seems like your heaven is a little um, unsentimental. <laughs> well, the whole system is, right? I mean, the yeah, system is... Yeah, the whole system ain't The great. system is, yes, it's very... Uh, I In the early days of thinking about it, to bring this to a sports analogy, I, desc- I described it in my head as a money ball system, where it's not, it's not, it's sort of cold and indifferent to the the sort of practical or real life realities of the people or where they came from. It's a very simple up or down, thumbs up, thumbs down system of like, you do this, if this, if anyone does this action in these circumstances, this is the number of points that this person gets. And, you know, obviously there's a lot of fun to be had with that, right? Like we've had endless amounts of fun in the writer's room writing examples of different activities and actions that would lead to, you know, like plus or minus points. But as soon as you as soon as I started working on this money ball system, I started thinking about why it would be a bad system. Like if this were the system, it has certain advantages. If it's truly sort of whatever you want to call it, omniscient and correct, and there's no arguing, well, that's good. But then there's a bad part of it too, which is like, well, then there's no arguing it. And you can't say, well, look at the circumstances of this person. Look at Eleanor's parents. Look at Jason's mom or whatever. Look at, you know, look at look at the fact that um, Tahani's sister is basically Beyonce times Rihanna times, you know, whoever times Madonna times everybody and that she lived in her shadow her whole life and that her parents were monsters and and that her parents always favored her sister over her. Like that should theoretically be a mitigating circumstance and the system doesn't appear in any way to allow for mitigation. So you know, that's a that's a theme that we sort of started developing at the end of the, the second season. And we're going to do a lot more of in the third is like what's good and what's bad about the extant system of, of evaluating people and how might it be improved? Yeah, because I think we've seen I don't know if it's the logical culmination of Moneyball, but if listeners don't know the trends in baseball, the ideas of Moneyball have been so incorporated into the game by everyone that what we're seeing is evaluation of things like walks, strikeouts and home runs. And that's all baseball has become. And a lot of people, I think, are plausibly arguing that the amount of uh, Moneyball systematic smart looking at the game has made the game a lot less quirky, rounded off the edges and given it a sameness, which leads me to this. Michael at one point says that the afterlife, the score is mathematical and omniscient, but it might be wrong. And I'm just wondering you as a guy who was an early advocate of sabermetrics and Moneyball, <laughs> if you have am- some ambivalence about, you know, advocating for sabermetrics and advocating for an omniscient mathematics to be applied to this quirky uh, sport you love or life you love? I do not, um, because the people who are arguing for sabermetric evaluation in baseball, sort of advanced mathematical evaluation of it, weren't necessarily saying it will make the game better. 
They were mm -hmm. saying, and we were saying, it is <laughs> a better way to evaluate a player's worth or value. That doesn't mean like the game will be improved. It simply meant you are foolish if you don't understand that these that these statistics over here are straight up better ways to evaluate a player's value than the old statistics you're using. And that's just that's just a fact. Like there's no arguing that. You can't argue that looking at a player's batting average is a better way to evaluate him as a hitter than looking at his you know, whatever you want to say, OPS or slugging percentage or blah, 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 blah. Like there are that. So it, no one was saying like, this will make the game more fun to watch for a viewer or whatever. We were just saying you that it's a better way to evaluate the value of a player. So I have to say that as a huge baseball fan right now, it's because these statistics have taken over and because the, of the way the game now works, you basically have what's called three true outcome players which are players who either strike out, walk, or hit a home run. Those players used to be like kind of rare. There used to be like Adam Dunn was a guy who you would say was a three true outcome player. There now seem to be mostly three true outcome players on teams, crazily. They're, it's like most teams are mostly made up of those guys. And as a result, in the average baseball game, you see a tremendous number of strikeouts, a tremendous number of walks, and a tremendous number of home runs, and little else. And I don't think, as a viewer as a fan that that's made the game better. Um, but it, but that doesn't mean that we were wrong to say that it was, a, that this was a better system of evaluation than the old system. Cause that, that's just a, that's just math. Like you can't argue with the math of it, whether or not it's the right way for the sport to go. I don't know. And I don't know whether, you know, there may come a reckoning in baseball where they have to start tinkering with rules to try to stop that three true outcome, like reality um, and try to like, like you said, let those edges go unsanded for a while because the experience of the game, it's the game right now. There's 162 of them in the regular season. It moves very slowly. No matter what they do, it will always move slowly. And as a result, it's going to lose, continue to lose ground nationally to basketball. And I don't know, maybe football, depending on whether football can, can get it to act together. But I don't like. I don't see a bright future for baseball, frankly, unless some of this stuff changes because it just it's it's not the most exciting it's ever been right now. I would say. Yeah, I agree. I mean, just say the words baseball or hit and run. Those are fun words to say, but three true outcome. It's a goddamn tongue twister. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it doesn't okay. it doesn't make the game sound super exciting, no. does it? <laughs> Michael Shore is the creator of The Good Place, Thursdays on the uh, National Broadcasting Company. Thank you, Mike. Thanks for having me. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code POD. That's ShipStation.com with the code POD. And now the spiel. Can violating a norm become the new norm? No, it can't. It's still not normal. President Trump is actually shit-talking the Fed. He is bringing the heat against the Federal Reserve Board. I think the Fed is uh, making a mistake. They're so tight. 
I think the Fed has gone crazy. How can this be? How can this stand? You didn't even know he did that, did you? That is just not done, by the way. The Fed must be independent of the president for so many reasons. They can answer to Congress, but they have to be independent of the president. It is important because if the president were to overtly influence the Fed and its members, that could affect the markets. He could play politics. He could time it to elections. He could enrich his family. And I don't know if Trump will be smart enough to do so or will be able to exert sufficient pressure to do so, but this is one of those areas where the really smart people fear not Trump himself, fear not the actual incompetent incarnation of Trump, but they fear the next Trump, the next quasi-dictator who will build upon all that Trump has torn down. Someone with actual smarts and skill and savvy, if Trump softens up a heretofore no-go zone, like playing politics with the Fed, what if a American Putin-type character comes in and is able to easily do that. That's dangerous. Now, that's dangerous. That's even eerie. And speaking of eerie, Donald Trump held a rally there last night. As always, he blithely tossed off calumnies. And I say this, and I mean this. The Democrats are the party of crime. That's what's happened. They are the party of crime. And there was the standard reliving, of course, of the 2016 election. This time it came with a focus on Evan McMullen, who the president couldn't even remember his name. Utah. Remember, it was so, it was so close, Utah. They had a guy that I never saw before. I don't know, this guy. Do you know who I'm talking about? And they had Crooked Hillary, the three of us. There was even a Hillary lock her up chant. She's still a danger to the community, apparently. And then the president said, listen, I hear you but we've got to be better than that. We're not going to jail our opponents. We're just going to beat them. And it got an even bigger round of applause from the crowd. No, none of that happened. Come on. That would be maybe somewhat normal. And this guy hates those norms, which isn't to say that a call to turn out to vote would be a dumb thing to have done in a political rally. Although I, I do think that a lot of Republicans who are actually running and have a chance to win which is unlike the situation in Pennsylvania, a lot of those Republicans would not want Donald Trump in their district. Because if you look at the polling on Donald Trump, and I don't count the red hat wearing Rasmussen pollsters, but if you look at, say, the last five presidential approval or disapproval polls, it shows at best the president is disapproved of by 10 points, and at worst, he's disapproved of by 17 points in those polls. He's underwater by an average of 13 or 14 points. Now, of course, as a fan of waterboarding, the president doesn't believe in the underwater status, and that is why he talks about the polls in general this way. If you believe in polls, I believe in polls. Only the ones that have us up, because they're the only honest ones. Other than that, they're the fake news polls. Remember, if the truth is unfavorable to Trump, it is a lie. If a lie is favorable to Trump, that becomes the truth. It's not that there are no longer categories of truth and lie. Those exist. It's just that we used to judge them based on an objective external standard. Now, much easier, we just judge them based on, is it something the president wants to hear or something the president doesn't want to hear? But my point is that Trump is not helping candidates when he campaigns for them because he is disapproved of by a significant margin. His base loves him, which is what a base does. 
tautology. But the base is, you know, it's people who are going to vote Republican anyway. And it's also known as people who you have to add on to if you want to win an election. Democrats in the polls are doing pretty well on the generic ballot question. But it turns out Republicans aren't doing poorly as a party. A recent poll came out showed Republicans as a party and Democrats as a party both have a 45% approval rating with the public, which seems weird to me. But given the rest of the polling we've seen in recent weeks, it just might be that there is a Me Too backlash the him to movement, the fear of the angry mob more than the fear of the handsy boss. On the New York Times new podcast called The Argument, centrish, leftish, white man, yeah, white man, we all apologize that some of us sometimes have good ideas. White man David Leonhardt looked at the, the politics of the situation this way. If you look at what's happening in these red states right now, the polling has gotten really bad for Democratic Senate candidates since the Kavanaugh stuff. And so it seems to me Me Too has some 50-50 elements right now, some really polarizing elements. And in the long term, it's important to win that battle for progressives. But for the short term, goodness, I'll be honest, I hope the Me Too conversation goes away for the next month and then we can pick it up later. You know, maybe he's right. I don't know. The reason I credit the opinion a little bit is that most times when a pundit offers political advice, that advice aligns very closely with the political beliefs that the pundit has. You know, what will work and convince other people is what policy should be adopted. So, for instance, Bernie backers will say the way to convince people to vote for you is to talk about income inequality all the time. And Mitch McConnell will argue that Democratic overreach on Me Too is hurting them because, you know, they hurt him. And the abolish ICE folks will say Democrats definitely have to talk about abolish ICE. It's proved to be good politics. In short, adopt my preferred policy position. That's definitely going to work on the campaign trail. I don't know. I don't know about any of this. I know that some polling shows that Republicans have gained a little bit in the last few days of the Kavanaugh hearings, but not all the polls show that, and not all Democrats have been hurt. I do know that the guys pounding on the Supreme Court door, I do know that the men and women pounding on the Supreme Court door are not going to say, wait, 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 Ross Douthit and David Leonhardt think we've overreached. That is two out of three. You can't win an election this way. However, if I were to offer one critique, it would be this. I'm not trying to change behavior. I'm just offering a comment. And it's that the hectoring of even the most odious senator at dinner will not boost the Yelp review of protesters in general. And also, I need to say this about this new popular chant, we believe survivors, we believe survivors. That is circular reasoning. If a person is a survivor... We know one thing about that person. She survived some action, and therefore belief is not a question. We support survivors. Sure, that makes sense. We believe accusers. It's not a stance I take. I don't think it's a good default, but it's at least a cogent argument. But we believe survivors. I mean, this is begging the question. I'm sure the fact that it was begging the question is not what drove Ted Cruz from the restaurant. He just can't stand logical fallacies, but maybe it was. That's it for today's show. The gist was produced by a whole mother forking shirt ball tandem. 
of PRB Anime and Daniel Schrader, senior producer of Slate Podcast, with a robot-like precision but a ladylike charm. Not a robot, not a lady. Steve Lichtai is executive producer of Slate Podcast. It's like a warm cup of clam chowder, white, creamy New England clam chowder from an endless fountain that will just not come to an unburbled rest. The gist, Florida and Arizona, two close Senate races, two top minor league affiliates for the bad place. I wonder how many points a Martha McSally vote gets or costs you. Oomperu deperu duperu, and thanks for listening. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com.